Well, really nice to see all of you. Thank you for braving that wind. It's almost enough, cold enough to make you get out of your car, feel it, and turn right back around. But you did not. There is a word that is thrown around Christian circles uh, kind of a lot. And so it's it's a word where the meaning is rarely explained. It's really just sort of assumed. And you know what they say about assuming. But it's an important word. It's an important concept for Christians to understand. And both of our passages, the one uh, read uh, tonight from Isaiah and also the passage from Luke, speak about this word. And that word is call or calling. Isaiah 6 is the calling of Isaiah. And Luke chapter 5 is the calling of Peter. And they're very different stories. Uh, Isaiah is taken up by divine vision into the throne room of God. And he sees the Lord high and lofty. And the seraphim, these angelic creatures, are flying around calling out, Holy, holy, holy. Luke dusty carpenter gets into the boat of a fisherman who's down on his luck and fills the boat with fish. Very different stories. They're both about calling. I wonder what you think about the concept of calling. Have you ever felt called to something in particular? Sometimes when someone really loves their job in the sense, or maybe it's a volunteer activity, but in the sense that they uh, have excitement and they uh, have a sense of purpose, a reason to wake up in the morning, they might say, I've found my calling. And I think, really, that's a fine use of this concept, this word. It, it, they typically mean when they say that, that they have found a situation uh, right near the intersection of Uh, of they love what they're doing, they're good at what they're doing, and they love for whom they are doing it. And so they they decide this is what they've been put on the planet for. They may or may not have a sense of uh, gratitude and a a sense of who put them on the planet to do it. Uh, You can search Google pretty quickly and find that I've found my calling is not an exclusively Christian concept, but the sense of calling is Christian. It's a Christian concept and one we need to understand. I often uh, get asked, in fact, I was just asked this afternoon uh, by someone uh, that, you know, when I became a priest or before I became a priest, how did I hear the call? How did I hear my calling? Something that people, when they ask me about that, that's, um, that's, that's usually how they say it. It's certainly uh, the calling doesn't have to do with ordination. Uh, Christians will often talk about feeling called. They'll say things like, I feel called to spend uh, less time at work and more time with my family. Or I feel called to start a new ministry at our church. Or I feel called to start a new career. We don't usually talk about, you know, I feel called to serve tacos tonight at dinner. It's usually a bigger thing than that. At least in my experience, we, we understand implicitly that God is the one doing the calling. He is beckoning us in a spiritual way to a significant change or undertaking. Now there are things that we're all called to by virtue of our relationship with Christ. For instance, 
you don't need to wonder if you are called to come to church. You don't need to wonder if you're called to read the scriptures regularly or, or to be, uh, you don't need to know if you're, wonder if you're called to be faithful to your spouse or faithful within your singleness. You don't need to wonder if you're called to love your kids or your grandkids with intention or to be generous. Because these are things that we are all called to in the sense that these are things that God wants of all of us and for all of us. But there are also times when God calls us specifically to do something for Him. My guess is that at least some of you have felt a calling in that sense. It could be a call to obedience in some aspect of your life. It can be a call to a new trajectory for your life. And, and in fact, that's what's happening with Isaiah and with Peter. And interestingly, in both cases, there is initially a pretty major impediment, at least in their minds, to their obedience to the call. And actually, I'm glad that, there, that the Scriptures include for us these impediments because I have found that lots of times when the Lord calls, we find all sorts of reasons, all sorts of excuses to try to say no to God's calling. And so we're going to look at the impediments that come up for Isaiah and for Peter. There's plenty more that we could talk about. We're going to talk about these two specifically. We're going to see how they get resolved, and then we're going to see what that means for us. So let's look at Isaiah first. Now I, I would be surprised if any of us have had a call quite like this. Doesn't mean we can't learn from it. Isaiah is given a vision of God. And his vision is breathtakingly majestic. Isaiah sees the Lord in this vision. And he is sitting on a throne way, way high. High and lofty, uh, the text says. And, and as a, it's a symbol of his majesty. Isaiah tells us that the train of his royal robe fills the temple. Fills the temple. The closest thing I remember, when I was a little boy, I remember seeing the royal wedding. Diana and her train went all the way down the, uh, the cathedral aisle. And, and I just, uh, that's, that's nothing compared to this. And angelic beings are flying around. They're called seraphs. Flying around the throne, circling God, praising God, calling out to, to each other with thunderous voices. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with your glory. These are not like the little Florentine baby cherubs. You know, like these are monsters of glory. And in God's presence, these seraphs cannot help but shout about His holiness and His glory. And I feel quite sure that however it is that you and I are picturing this scene of worship in our minds, <laughs> it's far short of the actual glory of the throne room of God. But isn't it interesting that Isaiah is not overcome with awe? not overcome with happiness or the sense of gratitude or the uniqueness of what he's being given. He is overcome with woe. Woe is me, he says. He's suddenly aware that he doesn't belong there. 
I'm lost, he says. I am a man of unclean lips. Everybody I know, everybody I associate with also has unclean lips. It's kind of a crude analogy. The other day I went to buy some new shoes and I was wearing the old shoes that these shoes would be replacing and when I saw my old pair next to my new pair I was amazed how dirty and gross the old pair was. I hadn't really noticed but seeing the old ones next to the new ones, ugh, the dirtiness was obvious. Isaiah suddenly in the presence of actual true glory and he realizes he's the pair of dirty shoes. In other words, Isaiah, Isaiah's impediment to his calling is his own sin. We're not given the specifics, but what comes up for him, what was immediately repulsive to Isaiah is the, is the words that he has spoken. Maybe it was untruth. Maybe he hadn't, hadn't been telling the truth. Maybe, maybe it was foul language or gossip. I don't know. Who knows? But in the presence of the angelic words to praise of, of praise to God, in the presence of God Himself, Isaiah is crushingly aware that he is, as he describes, a man of unclean lips. How could he be a prophet? How could he, how can someone like him speak the words of God to the people of God? And yet, rather than banishing this man of unclean lips from his holy presence, rather than telling him to, well, wash your mouth out with soap and try again another time, and certainly rather than sloughing it off and saying it's no big deal, God sends one of these seraphs, an angel, to touch these unclean lips with a burning coal from the altar. The altar would have been the symbol of purity, and cleansing and atonement. And the angel, remember, it's just a vision. Actually, burn his lips. But the, the angel says, Your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. God doesn't tell Isaiah to quit cussing. <laughs> and God doesn't even tell Isaiah why he picked Isaiah. Not really any of Isaiah's business. But as an expression of his own holiness, God declares Isaiah to be clean. God resolves the impediment that Isaiah sees to his call by, his, by God's own saving action. God resolves the impediment. And then what happens to Isaiah? His terror is replaced with trust. His woe is replaced with a sense of eagerness. His sense of unworthiness is replaced with a desire to serve. Here am I, he says. Send me, send me. And Isaiah was called to a very difficult, actually, a prophetic ministry, but he was faithful for many, many years, and God was always faithful to him. Now, a very different context, but Peter's story is, is actually similar. But as, as, we, as we come into this story, Peter has been fishing all night long on the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is also called the Sea of Gennesaret, or the Lake of Gennesaret. And Peter hadn't caught a thing. 
One of those nights, he's been up all night, totally fruitless effort. He's got to be exhausted, frustrated. And Jesus shows up in the boat, this animated preacher. He's had his venti Starbucks, and he says, Hey, why don't you let down your nets for a catch? And Peter knew who this was. Uh, Jesus had already, in fact, healed Peter's mother-in-law. But Peter is the fisherman, not Jesus. It is only out of respect. Maybe um, he, uh, he felt like he owed him a favor. It, there's, no, there's no sense where Peter thinks there is any chance there will be any fish. So Peter, you can imagine rolling his eyes, he agrees, and they catch more fish than they have ever seen. The nets are breaking. they got to bring in the other boat. Now, these boats were about 26 feet long and 8 feet wide and 4 and a half feet deep, and they both were sinking with the weight of the fish. That's a lot of fish, y'all. Now, how would you think that this fisherman would react to all of a sudden his boats are filled with fish? Wow! It's amazing Thank you, Jesus, you're hired. Same time tomorrow. No, Peter falls face down in the fish. He says, depart from me, Lord. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter sees the miracle. He's a miracle worker. And like Isaiah, he is overcome with his own unworthiness. And rather than receive the gift, he shrinks. He can't look Jesus in the eye. He is face down in a boat full of blessing. And he says, you got the wrong guy. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. Peter is overcome with shame. Shame. I can't think of any other emotion that this could be. And Peter's shame lies to him and leads him to the assumption that a holy man like Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with a guy like him if only he knew. And I've met plenty of people who made that same assumption, so they just stay away from church. I've already blown it. I've met plenty of people, church people, who felt some sort of call in their lives, but they could not get their heads around or couldn't believe that God would really have much of a plan for their lives because they knew their own past. I've met plenty of people for whom every act of good service is for them in their own hearts and minds an act of penance for something in their past. Shame is an extraordinary tool of the devil to impede us from answering the call of the Lord. And what Jesus does not say to Peter is just as important as what he does say. Jesus does not say, oh, gosh, Simon, I had no idea you were a sinful man. Jesus is not ignorant of Peter's sin. He does not say to, to Peter, oh, 
gosh, Simon, since you said so, I guess I will depart from you. See you later. He doesn't abandon Peter because of his sin. He doesn't say, oh, Simon, you don't have any. I've seen way worse. You don't have anything to be ashamed of. It's really not that bad. He does not deny that Peter is a sinful man. But Jesus knew something that Peter did not. Jesus knew that he himself would die for Peter's sins and would take upon himself the full penalty that Peter deserved just as he has died for you and for me. He's traded our unrighteousness for the benefit of his righteousness. And since he would declare us righteous, he can say to Peter, and he can, just as he says to you and me, with all the love and compassion of God, do not be afraid. Fear not. See, sin leads to shame, and shame leads to fear, especially, I think, fear of being found out. Jesus speaks right to the ashamed heart and says, do not be afraid. And it's not a suggestion, is it? Jesus doesn't send Peter away with seven steps to learn how to forgive himself. He doesn't say, all right, Peter, well, here's my card. Call me when you're ready. Jesus resolves the impediment. Now, if you relate to Peter here, I want to, I'm not saying you don't have something to be ashamed of. But I am saying that God is infinitely merciful and forgiving. And His cross is bigger than anything in your past. So you can put your sin upon the cross. You can put your shame upon the cross. Whatever the impediment is to a full life in Christ, you can put it upon the cross all of it. There's plenty of room on the cross, room to spare. Jesus resolves the impediment. And then what happens to Peter? P Jesus takes him on a journey that he could never have believed or expected. In fact, so magnificent is the freedom that Peter experiences at these words of Jesus that he leaves everything to follow Jesus, even the fish. Now maybe this speaks to you right now. Or maybe you just need to put it in your pocket for a time that you do need it. But if you feel a call on your life, you feel a divine pull towards something, maybe it's more, more a call to, to more Bible reading, but you just feel too busy. Maybe it's a call to more generosity, but you feel too broke. Maybe it's less time on Netflix and more time serving. Maybe it's more time with your family, but your boss is too demanding. Maybe it's ordination. I don't know. What is in the way? What is impeding the call? I have to tell you, God's going to resolve it. God's going to resolve it. If He's calling, He's going to make the way. The way may be circuitous. God will clear the way. He does not call by accident. He does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so whatever is in the way, whatever excuses we come up with, whatever we have not gotten over, it has been swallowed up by the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus resolves the impediment. Amen.